0: Hello and welcome back to How To PhD, episode number seven. In this latest installment of our doctoral guidebook, we'll be dealing with everything to do with ethics that you might need for your research projects. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Julia.
1: Hi, welcome back.
0: And today we are going to be talking about ethics. Now, I think this is a topic that a lot of people worry and certainly a lot of people complain about. But actually today we're going to show you that it's a really super useful process with a lot of benefits for your thesis, but also for wider society. Right. And so I guess a good place to start, Julia, is trying to define what is ethics
1: yeah I think the the aim really of ethical review is kind of protect those involved in your research, and that does include yourself. So the ethical review also helps to protect you as researcher. Mm-hmm. And by kind of obtaining ethical approval, you're demonstrating that you have stick to the accepted ethical standards um, that apply in your in your country. So um, I needed ethics for my PhD project, um, for an interview study that I was doing that involved pharmacy staff and pharmacy users, and um, also for a quantitative analysis. And it can take quite a long time. So for me, it was a really lengthy process um, because I needed um, a special kind of approval from the national health system here in the UK. Um, so it took me around six to seven wow. months, but I think that's different. I, I think for you it was much shorter, yeah. wasn't it? For you, yeah,
0: similar ethics process, similar kinds of questions that I had to answer, but not six months. It took about maybe thirty days. But of course, the the kind of the length it time length of time that it takes to approve it could vary university mm. to university. Mm. So um, today we're going to be splitting this into three yeah. key sections, which is how mm. to start what you need to put in your ethics on a sort of practical sense Uh, and then of course a practical deep dive onto key ethical concepts right Um, Mm. but before we get into that we just want to say a quick thank you to jobs.ac.uk for featuring us on their blog Uh, we both use their site to find our PhD positions and we wholeheartedly recommend it to any of our listeners uh, future or current PhD candidates who are looking for opportunities in academia or industry Uh, do check them out at jobs.ac.uk we thank them uh, for for their great support. So let's get into this with where on earth do you begin with ethics? So let's talk about the kind of beginning stage. And I guess the first question with ethics is really, do I need ethics, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is really important to make the point that you should always check Mm. if ethics is required yeah Um, so for example at my university uh, even if you're not going to be working with human participants or any kind of sensitive stuff you still need to go through that ethics process Mm. to say that i am not going to be working with this Mm. kind of stuff so it's really important that you check with your university's guidance Mm. Uh, inform yourself what these approvals and and what other approvals you'll need for your study so you can talk to your supervisors for this Uh, there will be an ethics committee at your university talk to the funder of course
1: because i needed for example also approval from my funder so not only from ethics committees yeah so before i could start so yeah that's really important really important
0: so there will definitely be a contact at your university who heads up all this kind of ethical mm. approval stuff just send them an email set up a meeting ask them the questions um and see what that process is but really important that we emphasize yeah. just make sure you know what that is because
1: sometimes it's not that straightforward so i in my case there was a lot of confusion which type of ethical approval i need so um don't suffer in silence like trying to sort out what you need get in touch with people who can help you with that yeah yeah and i think um what is also really useful what i did is that i asked my colleagues and supervisors to provide me with an example of their ethic applications that were successful just to get an idea of like how mm. like w- what are they include how they in which style they're written of course you can't like every project is different but i think you there's some things that you can yeah that are really helpful to see in other examples
0: yes yeah absolutely so I think there's that's a kind of very brief overview where to Mm. start get in touch with those people who can help and and get those questions answered and understand Mm. what the process is once you know that generally there are two sort of key parts in any ethics proposal right and the first is what's called the protocol right so what you're going to do and then all the supporting documents that goes with it so in this next part we're going to talk about this protocol first and this is really the main chunk of your Mm -hmm. whole ethics application so the ethics protocol now essentially you can think of this as a kind of mini version of your thesis methods chapter right it's essentially Mm -hmm. going to describe everything that you're going to do uh, Mm -hmm. and importantly why you're going to do it and there's a few things julia and how yeah. and how yeah and there's a few things i guess that that the phd candidate should know that they should include mm. in there
1: yeah so i think um they want to see, or I mean, it mean, might differ, we have to say that it might differ, but I think often they want to see a little bit of background. So why are you doing that research? And um, what are your research questions and objectives? And for my application, I also needed a kind of lay summary and what that is as, as a summary in um, of your project in like very understandable, <laughs> on a very understandable level. And so there should be free of any jargon and there are readability tests online where you can um, copy your summary to see whether it's readable um, or not but um it will usually include yeah just a bit of context um what is known about that your study aim and which research approach you're taking
0: and we should we should just say that with with these readability tests that we'll have a few links to them in Mm. the show notes so really really useful tools that actually i didn't really know about
1: yeah yeah exactly um and then you will also have to describe your design research design methodology so how will data be collected? Why will the data be collected? Um, How will the data be analyzed and dealt with? Um, How will you store your data or destroy it later on? Um, And then the key bit I guess is, of course, the ethical considerations, but we'll talk about that and give you loads of tips on that a little bit later. Um, As I mentioned before, you might need other approvals, so that also should be then included in your ethics application. So whether you need, for example, um, from, from your funder, any approvals before you can start study. And also um, that might surprise you, but they also wanna see like how you're gonna finance your project because um, they wanna make sure that you can finish your project. Um, um, otherwise you collect data and don't have any using it and that's not really considered as mm, ethical. Yeah. And another important part is to talk about dissemination. So where will you actually share your research? Um, again, that might not be an obvious point, but um, it's good practice actually to share, for example, a report of your study findings with any participants that yeah. took part in your study. So that's also something to kind of cover. And yeah, I think that's the key stuff that was a lot of information. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah. so
0: I think don't worry because yeah. we'll have all these different headings in the show notes yeah. at howtophd.show. So you can just essentially, you know, that's a lot of info. It can be a bit overwhelming, but don't worry just use these headings and talk to the right people about each mm-hmm. one and you will get there yeah. um, and then of course in addition to this protocol is often what's called the sort of supporting documents and these are all the documents that will be part of the research so for example if you have study participants right so human participants who are going to take part in your surveys or interviews then of course you need to create information sheets that will tell the participants what what they're gonna be doing. And Mm -hmm. often this language has to be sort of readable for the general public. Of course, you'll need consent forms, right? So that they agree Mm -hmm. to take part. Um, And of course, all these kind of documents like adverts for your study, flyers, any kind of emails you send to Mm -hmm. the participants, a topic guide if you're doing an interview, right? So what you're gonna ask them all of this stuff of course needs to be reviewed um, and so when they say supporting documents just think of everything to do with your study mm. which a participant will see right yeah. and if you provide that then of course that's 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 what we call the supporting documents that goes alongside the protocol yeah.
1: i just wanted to say one more point um because you mentioned the information sheets and content forms right and yeah there should be easy to read and it's sometimes good practice or a good idea to maybe have a small um, public engagement event or ask some members of the public to kind of review your these documents like an information sheet about your study in a consent form and um, to provide some feedback whether it's clear and um, readable um, so they can actually help you to review it and that, that's yeah
0: Often yeah, absolutely yeah you practice. can do a sort of informal yeah. discussion with people mm-hmm. to say hey look Get does, does this actually make sense yeah.
1: exactly yeah
0: so we've given the listeners a lot of information about the sort of documents that can go in and again we'll have all this breakdown on the show notes at howtophd.show um, so now we're going to take a step back and break down what we think are the six most important parts of the protocol and ethics application right which is what we're calling the ethical considerations Okay, so let's talk about ethical considerations. Now, we've identified six ethical considerations, which are essentially key ethics concepts that's really useful to understand, and hopefully will kind of put you at ease with this whole process and all these different terms that fly around with the ethical uh, process. So the first one we've identified is called informed consent, right? And essentially this means that participants know exactly what they're signing up to do, uh, and also that you explicitly get from them a confirmation that they are happy to do your study and this is this is so important from an ethical standpoint
1: yes and traditionally um, informed consent is obtained um, through uh, in a written form so Mm, that you have a kind of you said like a tick box um yeah. like document where people say, Yeah, they're happy um to to take part and then give their signature. Um, but more recently I think it's becoming a little bit more common that you can also consent people over the phone or so you record basically their answer saying, Yes, I'm happy to take part in the study. And yeah. I think I've seen that is so useful because especially during COVID where we don't have face to face interviews, so you can't just hand over a piece of paper and um, people don't have printers at their home maybe so they can't print out that sheet and sign it so oral consent on the phone just makes it so much easier and so I would definitely recommend to be prepared for both and ask your ethics committee um, to either consent people orally or in written form and then you have the choice later on and see what which one works
0: yeah really really important tip there um, and of course Another important consideration is to give your participants time to consider Mm, the information. And so often when you sign people up to do your study, uh, you will send the information at least sort of 24 hours before to say hey look this is what my study is about here's all the information um, and give them the time to read that and then sign the consent form Um, now of course I like to then repeat that information to them again when we Mm. do the study um, Mm. just over the phone briefly um, but just to ensure at all points that they know what's what's going on exactly
1: or you could also ask them um, can you tell me what you understood from the information that I gave to you about the study to really check have they understood information
0: you can almost get them to summarize it for you again
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: so uh and there was a point around sort of informed consent training yeah so
1: i had a training on it and i found it really useful where we kind of simulated that situation of how you would ensure that your participant really understands what they're doing so have a look whether you your university offers that or elsewhere it's a good thing to have i think in the application as well to say you're trained in it but you can't get it anywhere so um just one thing to think about
0: Yes, exactly. So I guess the next point is around this idea of participant confidentiality. Right, Julia?
1: Yeah. So I think the first bit is with that, of course, sometimes for research, we have to um, collect personal information, but you should ensure that you have a good rationale why you need that personal information. So if you're collecting, for example, information on the, the gender of a person, um, then be sure you have a justification why that information is really interesting and important for your research. And then I think the other point is um, with about confidentiality really is about um, making sure that if somebody, for example, if Aaron, you sign up for my research study, my interview, that I'm not going to go around and tell people, mm-hmm. oh, Aaron oh, yeah. took part yeah. in my study so that I do have that information and you, you took part in my study, but I keep that information con- confidential. And so this is something that they want to see how you make sure that, nobody knows who took part. And um, obviously, in any publications um, about your research, you should ensure that um, the personal information is anonymized. So nobody knows, Aaron Olajana, for example, took part in my research study.
0: Yes. And I think this now links quite nicely to our third point around data security, right?
1: Yeah. And a tip that I got from my colleague was to make a list of all the data, all the documents that will be kind of created through your research project and then plan, like think about all of these different items um, or data documents. How will you kind of save them and store them? How will you use them? Will you destroy them and when? Um, and think about how your data will get from place a to place b in a safe way so for example if you were um, kind of recording interviews in a city or something and then you have to bring them to the university how will you make sure that the traveling is um, safe especially if some people might do um data collection abroad then how <laughs> you get it from a different country um to your back to back home basically in it's a safe matter almost
0: like a classic like bank heist scene where the money is in like a secure <laughs> suitcase or something but no yeah, yeah you don't want to get of... there or
1: how can you minimize the risk that your data gets lost or um, right. stolen or wh- whatever so think about that that's
0: correct and sort of on the kind of devices that you'll use itself. So for example, if you're audio recording an interview or you're staving participant data uh, on a USB stick, then it's really important to ensure that in the case that it's lost, that the device itself is encrypted and this mm-hmm. will ensure that that risk of someone being able to access those files is, is minimized. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, if you're using a particular audio recording device, now there are a lot of audio recorders out there which offer encrypted recording. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, if you use a Mac, I know that all the files on there are automatically encrypted with something called mm-hmm. File Vault. So you'll be able to, as long as you have a password, that that's protected. Yes,
1: that's important, Ma- like using passwords for exactly all your documents. Yeah.
0: Many, many different tools out Mm -hmm. there to help you sort of manage the encryption and data security side we're not experts in this but if you use these kinds of tools and there's a lot of information out there um, hopefully you can ensure that if something got lost that it Mm -hmm. will be at least protected uh, with encryption Mm -hmm. and then of course if you are using interviews for example then you might use something like a transcription service and this Mm -hmm. poses another problem because essentially you're having to take your data that you've collected mm-hmm. and send it to a third party, right? Who's mm-hmm. going to listen to it and, and transcribe it. Um, and of course, this is really important, again, that this comes into your ethics approval, that you want to use a transcription service. Um, and of course, you need to ensure that this service is approved by the university um, where you're doing your PhD. So again, another important thing that can often might just slip your mind with the ethics application, um, but if you put it in now, it'll save you having to do a, a reapplication later on.
1: Yeah. And so I think the next point that we want to um, raise is about um, the right to withdrawal, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. So this right to withdrawal. And essentially, there are there are two types of withdrawal, right? There's withdrawal from the study at any point, And then, of course, there's withdrawal from the actual data that you're collecting. Now, the key thing with these sorts of things is to don't promise things that you can't keep and to just be transparent about what you're going to do in a situation that someone wants to withdraw. So, for example, if someone, if you're running, say, a longitudinal study, right, and you're testing people over a couple of months and someone comes to you after two months into the study and they say, hey, look, you know, I don't really want to take part anymore. What happens to their data, right? And this is, it's up to you to define this. Okay, so if you decide actually it's not possible for me to delete the data that's already been collected but instead mm-hmm. I can just remove you from the study no problem no questions mm-hmm. asked absolutely fine mm-hmm. if you decide actually it is possible for me to delete that old data then mm-hmm. say so I think this is the key thing is whatever you decide to do make sure that it's in your ethics yeah. and that it's transparent and that it's honest and just be realistic about what's possible so for example don't say um, you know it's possible to withdraw five years after the study completes mm-hmm. because look, you might have published that research, that might be in a journal, and there's there's no way you're gonna be able to withdraw that data, mm-hmm. right? That's impossible. So just make sure that people know what they're signing up to think about how long you need to keep that data uh, and just make sure that that's transparent and honest in your ethics.
1: Yeah, so I think our next point, point number five is um, the process of sensitive disclosure. So in my case, my PhD was about quite a sensitive topic about the use of sexual um, house services. And so I was just thinking, what would I do if somebody for example tells me that they have been sexually abused um, or did something criminal, where there were any safeguarding issues? Um, what would I do in, in that situation? Yeah. And kind of to protect myself and also um, to make sure we had kind of a pathway in place what will happen in that case. I did inform my participants, my interview participants, that if they disclose anything about abuse, criminality or safeguarding issues, that I would have to forward this kind of information to my supervisors and they would kind of Take care of that and mm-hmm. notify the relevant authorities. That is kind of a protection for myself, and to make sure that people also, for example, in case somebody was sexually abused and um, disclosed that to me, that this person was being taken care of as well. So, just important to think about that. That's something I think the ethics committee really wants wants to see. Yes,
0: yeah, so a really important, if a little bit difficult, topic. Um, so, the final point that we want to make and to wrap up all of these type of ethical concepts is essentially what is the benefits and risks of your research? So you need to ensure that, you know, what the research that you're doing actually has some kind of contribution, Mm -hmm. right? And so, for example, example benefits could be that participants will contribute to research on how services will be optimized or how Mm -hmm. future automated vehicles will operate. And this is beneficial because the technology will be safer and Mm -hmm. better for everyone. So that's an Mm -hmm. example benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Example risks, could be things like uh, ensuring that you will be safe during mm-hmm. the study and I think that's an important point Julia that you raised is actually not only ensuring that the risks are minimized for participants mm-hmm. but also for you as the researcher.
1: Yeah, exactly. So in my case, again, um, for my interview study, um, I um, had to ensure that I was safe in the location where I would do um, interviews. I ended up doing actually a lot of telephone interviews where I was safe <laughs> in my university space. But if I would have to travel um, there, I would kind of wear this alarm thing. I, I don't know, what. do you remember what the name yeah, of it's that a was? A personal alarm. A personal alarm, yeah, that you can wear around your neck. You can have a look. You can order them on Amazon anywhere. So that if I would get in trouble um, during my journey, for example, or during an interview, I could kind of um, um, start this alarm (laughs) to to get help. And I also um, said that I would always, always let my supervisors know on which days I'm interviewing people and at which times, and that I would inform them before I go there and afterwards, just to ensure that I made it home safely, for example, or back to my university. Um, So, yeah, think about your own safety as well. That's (laughs) That's right.
0: And and the important thing is the ethics board will want to know all of these things. And if you show that you've considered not only participant Mm. safety, but your own safety, then that just sets the whole thing. They, They can really see that you are in control and that you're managing this project really well. So that brings us to sort of these six kind of key ethical considerations. Uh, But Julia, actually you had one final tip, right?
1: Exactly, so I think um, just, I think write the ethics application in mind that if you make any changes to your protocol, that you will need an ethics amendment. And that will take time again, you will have to write that amendment, it will have to be approved. So I think um, sometimes, or in my case, for example, when I did my PhD ethical approval um, um, application, I was just describing initially um, just one recruitment method. And unfortunately it didn't work out. I didn't find any participants, so I was like, oh no. (laughs) And um, so I had to write another amendment where to say, oh, I'm also gonna use different kind of recruitment strategies. And then in the end, I did get my participants, but I think, um think about all the risks and problems that could arise and tr- try to think about how you could mitigate any risks. So for example, by using or outlining several recruitment strategies, just to ensure that you have a backup and you don't have to go back to uh, to ethics. Um, So just be honest about what you can and can't do realistically.
0: Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of How to PhD. Hopefully, you found this episode useful, and hopefully, you've seen that actually the ethics process can be hugely beneficial for your thesis mm-hmm. um, and actually forces you to think in a way that's really important about your research. Um, and so, hopefully, you found it useful. And of course, if you know of someone who you think could benefit from this episode, then please do share this with them. Um, and of course, if you enjoy listening to How to PhD and you'd like to support us, you can do that by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or visiting our website at www.howtophd.show and leaving a small donation through buy me a coffee thank you to everyone who's supported us with donations reviews retweets and feedback uh, it's very kind and we're hugely as always hugely appreciative of the support um, and of course we do always want to hear from you as well so do get in touch with us at our email at contact at and of course twitter and instagram as many of you know uh, which is our handle at howtophdshow So, Julia, next one, I think, is going to be a really interesting episode, right?
1: Yes, a really important one, I think, um, wherever you are in your research career. So (laughs) it's about how to successfully publish your research in journal papers, uh, as journal papers.
0: It's a big one. Yeah. And it's one (laughs) that we continue to uh, learn
1: more more about as we
0: go. Yeah. So thanks again for listening and we will see you all next week.